I invite you to turn your Bibles to Genesis 18, uh, Genesis chapter 18, and uh, we will look at uh, this next text of Scripture today. It's been a few weeks since we've considered Genesis together. I think the last time we did this, it was uh, quite hot outside, uh, and uh, we've had some great opportunities to continue our study through Genesis. We've had some great preachers in the meanwhile. Uh, last two weeks, we heard Mark Hassler uh, and his uh, great sermon outside. It was a joy to hear that and be, be a part of that. And then hearing Pastor James last week, I just heard outstanding things, although I was gone in Williamsburg, heard outstanding things about a sermon and uh, even know that it's impacted some, some of my own neighbors uh, uh, in, in a great way. So I'm just excited about that. Uh, that's one of the best things about Colonial is it uh, doesn't matter who's up here. It's just uh, next person, next man up and take us through the text of Scripture one verse, one line after another, and then show us not only what it means, but how it applies to our lives. So um, as we uh, reflect back on that last time in Genesis, the last time I was with you, we considered a theophany, an appearance of God, where God spoke to Abram in, Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. And in Genesis chapter 17, he, he reveals to Abraham that he is going to have a son. Although he's 99 years old, he's going to have a son through natural means with his wife Sarah, who's 89, I think, or just about 90. And although Abraham initially laughs at it, he later steadies himself to obey the commands that God gives to him in the chapter. One of the commands being an unpopular command, I'm sure, among Abraham and his whole household, he was to make sure that the, all of the men and all of the boys in his household were to be circumcised as a sign of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. Now within this chapter, uh, chapter 17 of Genesis, we did not learn about Sarah. We didn't learn much about her. We didn't learn how she would respond to this promise of a son, but that's what Genesis 18 is going to uncover for us. But Genesis chapter 18 is not just about Sarah. Uh, Genesis 18 should be held together with Genesis 19. These two chapters belong together. And you can know that because as you go to the end of Genesis 18, God introduces the, uh, the threat of the judgment of a wicked city by the name of Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah. And then in Genesis 19, you can learn about the actual destruction of Sodom. Now, the main events in these two chapters, uh, Genesis 18 and 19, are also held together because they all occur within one 24-hour period. Just reading these kind of uh, immense texts, it's, it's easy to lose sight of that. So let me just show you that uh, very quickly before we dig in too deep. Look at Genesis 18 and verse 1. It says, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat um, at the door of his tent. And then here's a marker of time in the heat of the day. So this story starts out in the afternoon, early afternoon, maybe noon, maybe a little bit after that. But then you go to Genesis 19 and verse 1. So there are a lot of verses between these two markers. Genesis 19, verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening. So Genesis 18 describes things that occur in the afternoon. Genesis 19, in the evening. Look at Genesis 19, verse 15. As morning dawned, Okay, so just following the train of thought, the very next morning, there's some events that are going to happen. The angel urges them to get out of the city. And then verse 23, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar, when he had 
been freed or you know uh, escaped uh, Sodom. Uh, the sun had risen on the earth. We're back to mid-afternoon. These events all occur primarily within one day, one 24-hour period. Now, although Genesis 18 and 19 occur over one day, we're actually going to take two Sundays to look at these chapters. And uh, before you complain about that, I've seen a lot of preachers take like four. Okay, so you say it's one day, and you're, you're, you know, are we just trying to relive it? Is, are these sermons going to take 24 hours like the events uh, took? Uh, hopefully not. But I want to do a two-part series because within these chapters, this one day, there, there are very important lessons we can learn about the character of God that we can learn about the nature of God. And I want to slow down at those points and really make sure that we are getting these lessons. Now, the way I'm going to organize my thoughts in, in these, this big narrative over one day is to, uh, to organize it around the different locations where these events take place. So today we're going to look at Genesis chapter 18, and there are two locations where the events occur here in Genesis 18. Everything starts in the first location at Abraham's, Abraham's tent in verses 1 through 15. So if we look at verses 1 through 15, we'll notice what hap- is happening at or near the door of Abraham's tent and, and underneath the trees just outside of his house. Two scenes occur in this location. It, it all starts, the first scene starts with Abraham as a host in verses 1 through 8. So look down in your Bible at verse 1. It says, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, and as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, or O ruler, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourself under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread. And that is like it sounds, small crumbs of bread. I give you a very small portion of bread. That you may refresh yourself, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent of Sarah and said, quick, three seeds of flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the young men who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. This is the first scene. Abraham secures a welcome meal for three guests that appeared to him as he's seated in the door of his tent. Here it seems like he and Sarah have a more permanent spot for their tent. It is a temporary dwelling, but this is, this is where they've kind of settled in. They're uh, under some oak trees in Mamre uh, in Hebron. And at this location, three men come to them. Now, the three men here, um, there's a lot of debate about who these three men are. So for every one of us, I want us to think, who are these three guys that appear to Abraham here? Some early interpreters believe that the three men represent Three members of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There are three members of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so, going the whole way back to like people, well, some of the Jewish rabbis, uh, I guess they didn't believe this, but, but just after that, some early Christian interpreters did. And then someone as well-known as Augustine. 
Augustine believed that these three men represent manifestations of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in human form. And some today still believe this, and I think they have good reasons for doing so, especially as they get into chapter 19. But I think there's a better way to look at it. I'll just show it to you very easily in your Bible. I think the three men uh, represent, first, two angels. You say, well, where do you see that? Look at Genesis 19, and verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening. Just before this, in chapter 18, we saw that two of the men had broken away from the third. And these two men went down to Sodom, and in Genesis 19, verse 1, they're called angels. So I say two of the men are angelic beings, messengers of God, powerful messengers of God who are appearing in human form to Abraham outside the door of his tent. But in Genesis 18 and verse 22, I think we could learn the identity of the third man. These two men go down to Sodom while the third man stays to talk longer with Abraham. At least that's how I take verse 22, Genesis 18, 22. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. So the third being found in human form with Abraham here is the Lord Yahweh. Okay, so that's how I take this passage. If you disagree, we can, you know, we can debate it. Not on Father's Day, but some other time uh, we can debate that. Okay. To these impressive guests, Abraham graciously offers a refreshing wash, wash your feet, and a modest meal, a morsel of bread. And that's where things get interesting in the text. He offers them a meal, and they take him up on the offer. Men on Father's Day, I'd, I'd ask you to admit some of your shortcomings. Men, have you ever uh, done something like this without consulting your wife before? Yeah, honey, uh, this is my friend uh, from college, and uh, he's in the area. We, we met up, and I invited him and his whole family over for dinner. Ever try something like that and live uh, to tell about it? Yeah, of course. Yeah. I, see some, I see some of those hands. Um, in this scenario, hey, hey honey, uh, trying to modernize this illustration, uh, there, are three, there were three strangers walking outside our house. They were in the driveway. Yeah, I talked to them. And they're nice. They're nice. Oh, and, and I offered them a meal. You did what? I don't have food in the cabinets. What, what are you doing? Well, back in Abraham's time, this was custom. This was a way to demonstrate hospitality to others since traveling was so difficult for them. So anyway, Abraham makes the offer and they take him up on it. it. So he goes into his tent and from this point, everything in the text is in a hurry. The language is truncated and shorter. The words that are used is like quick, hurry, stuff like that. This can be reflected, I think, uh, you know, and you read the, the original Hebrew, it's almost humorous, but I think some English versions capture it really well. It'd be something like this, Sarah, flour, knead it, bake it. Then he leaves. <laughs> well, how much do you want me to do? Uh, 24 pounds. What? This is three sias of fine flour. 24 pounds, what? Well, Abraham doesn't stick around very long to find out or explain why he needs this much food for three guests. 
Because what he does next is he runs. You see that in the text? He runs. A 99-year-old man running. How impressive, right? He puts it in the high gear, runs out to the herd, finds a choice calf, gives it to a young man and tells him to cook it quickly. Quickly. Things are moving very quickly. But Abram's little snack turns into an extravagant feast for these three men. He adds to this curds, which would be kind of like yogurt and milk. So you've got the bread, the curds, the milk. You've got the savory meat all kind of complementing each other. Then Abraham serves the food and he stands by them while they eat their food. Abraham is not just a gracious host. He's their waiter at this point as well. Now as we uh, conclude this first scene... Uh, in, in or near the tent of Abraham, we should be prepared, I think, to follow his example of, of hospitality. So that's a strange uh, argument to make from this text. It seems out of line with the, the main intentions of the author. Well, I, I would object to you. I'd say, well, that's what the author of Hebrews does. In Hebrews 13 and, and verse 2, as he's appealing to New Covenant believers, he gives them a reason why they should show hospitality to strangers. And he says it this way, he says, because some have entertained angels unawares. And I think he's looking back to this text. Some people thought they were just serving three men, ignorantly, and they were serving angels. My interpretation as well, one of the three men would be a representation of the Lord himself. When I preached a sermon on the Hebrews text, I encourage you to consider how you use your home. And I would do that again. Do you often have people over or into your home, including strangers or brothers and sisters in the Lord? Are you quick to have people into your home to minister to them and to care for brothers and strangers? I was doing some uh, study this week, and I came across John Calvin. John Calvin had some very interesting things to say about this text. When he was preaching through this text, uh, he, uh, he uh, talked about the increasing presence of inns in Geneva, or hotels, inns. He felt that the growing number of inns revealed the weakness and failure of the church to show Christian hospitality. It's an interesting concept. There may have been other reasons, but perhaps he was on to something there as well. Will you use your home? I wonder how Colonial Baptist Church fares on this account before the Lord. I just encourage you to consider that. Consider having food, small portions of food ready that you can make, a meal you can make to have someone in to help them. Here, Abraham and Sarah most definitely passed the test in their tent, their little tent here. Well, the second scene, at or near the door of Abram's tent, turns the focus next to Sarah, uh, next on Sarah in verse 9. Uh, we're going to read verses 9 through 15. I want you to see all the different times that Sarah is mentioned in the text. Look at verse 9. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. 
And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out, my Lord is old. Shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. End of the scene. So the first scene has Abraham as host. This one I would entitle Sarah as liar. (laughs) Sarah as liar. This scene starts out with three guests finishing their meal. One of them, the Lord, asks Abram about Sarah and then explains that she will give birth to a son. Now, God had already told Abraham that they're going to have a son through Sarah. It's not clear if he had told Sarah, if Abraham communicated that on to Sarah or not. We don't know for sure. Probably, you know, maybe not. Regardless, here she overhears it. She laughs to herself and she mumbles some interesting things to herself about her age and her Lord. Small L, very small L. Abraham, who himself is old. Now we could debate why Sarah laughs here, but that would probably be counterproductive. I'll just say it's to our advantage that she does laugh, because in response to her laughter, the Lord asks a powerful rhetorical question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? I like how one commentator puts it. He said this question forces them to face whether or not they have faith in the power of God to accomplish his purposes. Forces them to consider whether they have faith or not in the power of God to accomplish his purposes. Think about it. I mean, if you answer that question, yes, well, some things are too difficult for the Lord, then you reveal that you have not fully grasped or understood the nature of the creator god if you answer that question in that way men and women as you come to this text you you understand how amazing this scene is the creator god of the universe humbles himself condescends to eat a meal with a human being abraham his friend other texts will tell us his friend underneath some oaks in Mamre. This is the creator God. This is the all-powerful, all-existing, eternal, all-knowing God of creation. The God who spoke all of this into existence and, men and women, this is the God who said, you will have a son. And so in this first section that occurs in or near the tent, I think it's meant to teach us, you know, we we can't leave the tent scene unconvinced of God's power. Indeed, nothing is impossible for him. That's the point. That's the the powerful rhetorical question that kind of concludes this part. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Perhaps you are having difficulty in your Christian life. You're having difficulty with one of your children. They're beginning to wander or drift. You're concerned about their attitudes. 
or their actions. You're going away from the biblical principles that you taught them. They're beginning to live the life of a prodigal. And you're overwhelmed. You need to consider afresh and anew this question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? You need to tell yourself that over and over again. Can God redeem my child? And answer it. Don't just state the question, is anything too hard for the Lord? Afford it the answer it deserves. No, nothing, nothing is too hard for the Lord. Perhaps you're enduring a great affliction that came out of nowhere, some health crisis. Has you down. Your soul is burdened. You need to repeat this question to yourself time and time again. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Perhaps you've experienced some difficulty at work or you've been treated poorly by someone else and they have no remorse about it. It doesn't look like they would ever repent. Might I suggest this question? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Repeat it over and over again. This week I've been repeating this question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Anything too hard for the Lord? As I said as well, answer it. Don't leave it unanswered. No, nothing is too hard for the Lord. So in this text, in the tent scene, we learn nothing is impossible for the Lord. Now, the next two scenes in Genesis 18 occur at a scenic overlook on the way to the city of Sodom. Okay, so from Genesis 18, verses 16 through 33, imagine Abraham and these men at this overlook looking down on Sodom. Let's read about the first scene at this overlook where God reveals his intentions to Abraham. Look at verse, verses 16 through 21 where God reveals his intentions. It says, And the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them and set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, or I have known him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, now this is to Abraham, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know it. Here's a gracious host. The scene starts with Abraham walking his guests out as they leave. We have some fun family traditions about that when you leave our home, in most cases, at least family, and waving until you can't see them any longer. You walk outside and you just keep waving until they go around the corner. Then you run inside. Uh, but here, Abram walks them out, and he goes with them uh, to this place, um, to this, uh, this overlook. So Abram turns from a gracious host to a conversation partner with God. 
Now in this text, it's very important because we're thinking about big things today about our Creator God. It's very important for you to know some things about the language of this text. One of the things that, that will just help you, if you can keep this in mind throughout Genesis 18 and uh, other Old Testament texts, it can really make sure it protects you from having a faulty view of God. In this section, God accommodates himself to Abraham and to us by condescending to us. That is, he allows himself to be explained and understood in human terms that makes sense to Abraham and to us. But it's important for us to remember a few things. I'll give you two examples. One, remember, God does not need to deliberate with two angels whether he should talk to Abraham about what he intends to do. Isaiah talks about this. No one can offer God counsel. So God is not like perplexed. Should I let Abraham in on this or not? What do you think, angelic beings? God does not need counselors. Instead, he has this conversation for our benefit. He does this so that we can learn more about God's closeness with Abraham and his plan to bless Abraham as Abraham obeys and follows him. But may I also tell you this, God also doesn't need to go down and see Sodom. Right? God is omnipresent. What does that mean? He's everywhere. He's already in Sodom. And he's omniscient. What's that mean? He knows everything. Okay, but again, he condescends here. He uses human language to describe himself. And he speaks this way so that he can have an exchange with Abraham. I think the way that God talks with Abraham here compels or invites Abraham to intercede on behalf of Lot in the city of Sodom. He's like leaving it open, like I'm going on this discovery and I'm going to find out. And that peaks Abraham's ears and he knows his nephew Lot is down there. And so Abraham is going to get involved in a very famous conversation with God where he pleads for the people of Sodom. But just remember, God doesn't need, doesn't need to investigate this. He's known, like, forever what Sodom would be like and the fate that they would face. Now, before we look more closely at the second half of the passage, I want to focus a little bit more on what God actually does say or communicate with Abraham after this dialogue with the two angelic beings. Look again at verse 20. Okay, so verses 20 and 21. Then the Lord said, Because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. Again, God already knows what's been happening with Sodom. But he speaks this way to make a point to Abraham. Here, God says, and he uses language that's very similar to the Tower of Babel incident. Remember that? They built this mighty, impressive tower. They're all boasting about it, and God says, I'm going to have to go down and look to see this puny little tower. There he does it to emphasize the weakness of human beings. Put all of them together, there's still nothing compared to God. He has to strain down to look. That's a human way to describe God. He doesn't need to strain to look. 
Here, he speaks this way to twice emphasize the sins of the city of Sodom. He wants Abraham to know that his divine judgment was coming against Sodom and Gomorrah because of two things. Because one, their sin is grave. And that's pretty straightforward. Their sin is significant. And two, because the outcry is great. Did you see that in the text? It's emphasized twice there. The outcry is great. That one was a little harder for us. What does the outcry is great mean? And it's hard because he doesn't tell us exactly whose outcry he's talking about. And so I want to suggest a few ideas to you about this phrase, the outcry is great, and what that means. First, using the language of Genesis earlier in the book of Genesis, I suggest this might be an echo of an earlier text where Cain's blood was crying out to God from the ground. You remember that? Cain had been murdered by his brother, and his blood was crying out to God. And so I suggest these outcries at Sodom and Gomorrah might refer to those who had their lives robbed through the brutal actions of the city's inhabitants, people who were murdered. But the word outcry is also used in other places in the Old Testament. It's used in the cries of widows or orphans who've been oppressed by others. Wrongfully and shamefully oppressed, these vulnerable people. In the next chapter, we'll see that uh, the same citizens in Genesis 19, the same citizens gather together to oppress someone. They're going to oppress the two angels. You remember the language of Genesis 19? If you don't, no problem. We'll talk about it next week. Remember the language? It says, every man of the city gathered outside, every man gathered outside the doors of Lot's house to violently and sexually assault the two men or angelic beings. That was their intention. And so when we're talking about the outcries of Sodom and Gomorrah, I would suggest that it could be situations like that. Situations severe and strong like that. The word can also be used of, it was also used in the Old Testament of oppressed slaves who were mistreated by their owners. Regardless of all these things, I think that this speaks of the fact that God hears and sees when people are brutally mistreated. Get that? God hears and sees when people are brutally mistreated. Imagine the roar from all of the violence and the assaults and the murders that God hears in our world today. God hears and sees, and he will one day deal with it. He will deal with it. So God tells Abram that he is going to Sodom to deal with their sins and respond to the outcries, or the outcry. That leads Abraham to plead for Sodom in the following passage, and I know we're running out of time, but let me read through this, this famous Uh, text with you and make a few comments. Verse 22. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose that there are 50 persons within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it from the 50 righteous who are in it? 
Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fares the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Two words that rhyme in Hebrew. (laughs) I'm weak. Verse 28, Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole place for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, "Uh, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak again. But this one time, suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place, his tent. The way I take verse 22 is that the two men, the two angels, go off to Sodom, leaving Abraham all alone with the third man, the Lord God. Not the only one to take it this way, just in case you're wondering, John Goldingay says... uh, As two of the visitors go off to Sodom, Abraham engages Yahweh in a dialogue about whether he will sweep the town away if there's some faithful people living there. As Abraham looks over Sodom from this scenic overlook, no doubt he's concerned for his nephew, Lot. So he takes courage and he begins to appeal to God, explores whether God will punish the righteous alongside the wicked. And he engages in this famous dialogue, you know, that goes from 50 to 45, and then it it starts going by 10, you know, to 40, then it goes by 10, 40, 30, 20, 10. And Abraham is interceding on behalf of the city and asking God to be merciful because of the existence or the presence of some righteous people in the city. It appears, however, from Genesis 19 that there are far fewer people, righteous people, in this city than ten. Now, I just want to point out a few things to you about this prayer, this intercession that Abraham has with God. There are three things I want to point out about God, and then we'll be done as we close here. And these are all devotional and applicable as well for us. The first thing I point out to you in reading through this whole exchange at the end of Genesis 18 is that God is remarkably patient with Abraham. Abraham just keeps pushing and pushing and pushing. Just one more time, God. Just one more level. Just one. Got one last thing to say. A little further, a little further. I think at times in this text, God has the right to be a little disturbed. Like for me, verse 25. Far be it from you to put the righteous to death with the wicked, God. Far be it from you. And then he says, shall not the judge of the whole earth do what is right or just? (laughs) Abraham, do you remember who you're talking to here? (laughs) If I were God, I think I might squash him like a little pea. (laughs) And Abraham thinks he has it all figured out, right? But the solution that he offers here about the presence of a few righteous people delivering the whole city is not even something God is considering or planning at that time. 
I wonder how often we speak to God in prayer where we've got it all figured out. God, there are really two choices before you in this situation. There's, this one's far better. And if we could see behind the sovereign purposes of God and His knowledge, we'd just say, okay, He's got a lot more choices than two. Can you see the patience of God in this exchange? Don't leave this scenic overlook without seeing God's patience. He is so patient, so very patient with His people. I'd add to that, number two, God is so merciful in this text. We can learn something about the character and nature of God here too. I like how uh, the Southern Baptist uh, Kenneth Matthews describes God here. He says, The Lord does not require any arm-twisting by Abraham to act benevolently and lovingly. It's like Abraham's all sensitive in this text, and he should be because he's talking to the Creator God, Yahweh, the Lord. But you don't need to twist God's arm to get him to act benevolently and lovingly. Abraham just keeps pushing and pushing and pushing, and God keeps agreeing and agreeing and agreeing. I couldn't help but think of the text in 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, and some of you know this. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Do you see that impulse of God here? What about 50? Sure. What about 40, 45? Sure. 40, 30, 20, 10, 10. How about even 10? Yes. I'll, do, I'll save the whole city. God is so merciful in his character. But one last point I want to make about God, and that is, finally, God discriminates between the fate of the righteous and of the wicked. You need to know that about God today. I think that's probably the predominant lesson from the scenic overlook. Is there, as God and Abraham are having this exchange at the end, what you need to learn about God is that he does discriminate between the fate of the righteous and the fate of the wicked. As the righteous judge of the earth, God will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. Earlier in the text, you remember God asked Abraham and Sarah, is anything too hard for the Lord? And that question originally was about his promise to produce a son miraculously from the dead womb of a a 90-year-old woman. But we can ask this question, is anything too hard for the Lord, when we consider the eternal fate of sinful men and women too? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Can the Lord do anything about this? And, and we know, if we know our Bibles, that many years later, God answers again that question. He gave us all a miraculous son, born of a virgin, not through natural means, not through human means. And in this miracle, God gave His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, so that you would not need to be punished eternally as one of the wicked. In this text, you have the fate of the wicked and the righteous described, and as you trace that theologically through the Bible, one of the themes that you'll walk away with especially as you get to your New Testament scriptures, is that every human being who has fallen short of God's glory and who fails to believe in Jesus Christ is part of the wicked. 
You're thinking, like, how does this text relate, this ancient text relate today? The wicked are those who fall short of God's glory, those who sin and who reject Jesus Christ to deliver them from their sins. And what we find about their fate is the scriptures make it very clear. They will be cast into hellfire. The wicked. Those who reject Jesus Christ. They will suffer eternal torment, eternal anguish, weeping, gnashing of teeth, utter blackness and corruption there in that eternal place. But the righteous are those who turn to Jesus Christ for their deliverance. Those who turn from their sin to believe on the name of the miraculous, only begotten Son of God who comes later. And so we ask, we close by asking this question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? If you're here today and you've never believed in the name of Jesus Christ, I would close with these words from the Apostle Paul. Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this narrative. It teaches us so much about who you are. Nothing is too hard for you. And you as a righteous judge will discriminate between the fate of the righteous and the fate of the wicked. In Genesis 19 next week, Father, we'll learn more about how you, how you acted to deliver some, some righteous in Sodom. But Lord, today our concern is more for our spiritual well-being and our eternal condition. And so Father, I would pray today that as we have considered this, these big things about our Creator God, that this would have hit some people in our room as quite significant. I pray that who you are, nothing is too hard for you. That that would impact especially those who have never believed in the name of Jesus Christ for their salvation. Men and women with your heads bowed, if you're here today and you've never believed in the name of Jesus Christ to deliver you from your sin, I invite you to do that right now. At your seat, pray to the Lord. Thank Him for this miraculous gift of His only begotten Son who came, lived the perfect life, and died on a cross to pay the punishment for your sin. Would you believe in Him today? Turn from your sin. If you've got questions about that, after the service, I would, uh, I would love to talk with you. I'll be available near the front here. I'll stick around for quite some time. If you'd like to talk about whether you are a part of the righteous or a part of the wicked, I would love to chat with you about that. Or perhaps you could talk to another um, one of our members here today about how you can know for sure that you're part of the righteous. Dear Lord, we thank you for our time together. We pray that you would continue to use this uh, text in our lives to encourage. I pray that my brothers and sisters here today would find rest in God alone. In Jesus' name, amen.